call to a worship that includes praise and the singing of joy to you. And then we have done that. We have celebrated your goodness in these hymns and choruses. Indeed, O oh God, glorious things of thee are spoken, but none of them are adequate to describe the God who is, the God who reigns, the God who is thrice holy and is sovereign in all he does and is immense in loving kindness. And I pray, O oh God, that our worship might contain all of that, that it might have in it the seeds of reverence, that we might not uh, handle sacred things carelessly, but that we might come before you as people who long to hear words that originated in heaven. I pray, Father, for the congregation. Uh, we have experienced a wonderful week of missions emphasis, and we pray that that, that desire to be involved in lessening the needs around the world will never be quenched. I pray for the members of this congregation who have serious sickness among their families, and I pray, Father, that you will give them a ray of hope, even in uh, the darkest of days. Now, Father, uh, accept these small tokens of our gratitude, of our faith in you, and our commitment to trust you for our financial future more than we trust ourselves. We commit ourselves to that, O oh God. Uh, we give with that attitude, that mindset, and that posture. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Now grab your Bibles, if you will, and let's resume our study of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1, follow as I read. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you from Egypt, led you up from Egypt, and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. The grass withers 
and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever and ever and ever. I, I need to say one quick thing because you might be confused about the reintroduction of Joshua. What the text is doing is taking us backwards so it can take us forwards. It's reminding us of something that happened in the past. Because the, the book begins with Joshua's death. But here's Joshua again alive. But the, the text is taking us back so it can take us forward. It's reminding us of something of a situation that existed in the past. So that it can then tell us what is happening presently and subsequently. So I, I hope that will clear up that question if that existed in any of your minds. Maybe it didn't. Maybe I just caused it. But here's a, here's a nation, God's people, who are really kind of settling down into their uh, the inheritances, are, are um, seemingly uh, got life by the tail, and, and all is going rather easily for them. They're in, a, in their settling down. They, uh, they settle down to a, a significant degree of spiritual lethargy, and in that lethargy, they get a visit. They get a visit from him who is known as the angel of the Lord. Now, gang, let me, let me mention this first because it, it, it has application later. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, normally, and just about everybody agrees, that normally when you find this term, the angel of the Lord, not an angel like Gabriel or Michael, but when you find this term, the angel of the Lord, what you have is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. They're called Christophanes. That is, Christ appears um, before he's born. Now, let me show you a couple of reasons why I think you should draw that conclusion here. Look at the language that he uses in verse 1. I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land. Well, who did that? See, those words couldn't come out of Gabriel's mouth or Michael's mouth. They could only come out of the mouth of one who was divine. And in the New Testament, we're even told that the rock that followed um, Israel out of, in her wanderings out of Egypt was Christ. So all I'm saying is the angel of the Lord, I think we are to understand as being a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a, a Christophany. Now, gang, all of that to say this. Apparently, this visit is pretty important. Um, the situation must have been pretty bad for the angel of the Lord to show up. His, his presence just underscores the importance of the message that is about to be brought. Um, this, is a, this is a critical moment in the life of Israel. It's underscored by the uh, visit of Christ himself. But the message that he gives here that, to Israel is one in which there is a spirit that might be addressed to audiences like us. And that's what I want to get to in a, in a few minutes. In spirit, there is a message, not simply for Israel here, but for us as well. And I, and I hope I won't miss it, and I hope you won't miss it. it because the... This dialogue, actually, is not a dialogue. It's kind of a monologue. But, but in this monologue, the angel of the Lord speaks about a, a human problem that we share. And that is man's 
waywardness, his propensity to move towards carnality. And these people do that in the view of all of his kindnesses to that nation. He has just got them out of Egypt. They're defeated. All their enemies are supposedly in a halfway manner. And, and then the angel of the Lord reminds them of the covenant he made. He said, you know, I, I told you that I was never going to leave you. And in that covenant, I made, one, I made one demand on you. One demand, and that was you were to rid this land that I was giving you of all of those enemies. You were to strike down all their altars. You were, to, you were so, supposed to be the, the most uh, intensely separated people um, ever. Everybody was supposed to be driven out. That's all I asked of you. But uh, you didn't do that. And, and in the midst of that, I, I want to pause because when I hear God say something like this to end of verse 2, it always kind of moves me. You see... You see the heart of God saying, why did you do this? This plaintive plea and cry on the part of the angel of the Lord as looking at his people and said, I demanded one thing of you. And you didn't do it. Why have you done this? And then he goes on to say, as you can see, that uh, I'm not, I'm not going to drive them out before you. And the people's response, um, as you see in verse 4 and 5, is that they lifted up their voices and wailed. That's, by the way, is the, the meaning of the word bochin. It means weepers. That's why they named this place Bochim, because they wept. And we're even told um, later on in verse 5 that the children of Israel, uh, and, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, guys, <clears throat> here's the question, at least one of the questions that I think this text raises for us. It raises the question of the nature of real repentance. It poses us with this question. Is this or is this not real repentance? Well, is it? What do you think? Well, I want to give you my opinion in a second, but um, first of all, let me tell you the, the relevance of, I think, the message for us. Fast forward with me about 4,000 years and uh, take a look, I think, at what a message like this has for people like us. Because you and I live in a culture that is pluralistic. Now, you know, that, that's a philosophy term. It simply means a society in which there are opposing beliefs and lifestyles all around us. And it's easy to get confused and start thinking of tolerance as being the same thing as approval. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, that is what many of the opposing lifestyles and ideologies are after. Not simply tolerance, but approval. And they've almost redefined the term tolerance. Josh McDowell wrote a book about the new tolerance. And it doesn't mean anything like what it used to mean. 
tolerance was supposed to mean, uh, in the midst of my opposing views that are all around me, that I live peaceably, or at least um, I, I do not get involved with that, but we can tolerate each other, even in our opposing one another. But tolerance today means that I'm supposed to be accepting. Now, guys, um, I indeed must exercise patience and tolerance with those who believe differently than I do. We're commanded to do that. And by the way, the church is not given the power of the sword. That is, we're not supposed to be the ones doing executions. Uh, indeed, we're supposed to be living with an exercise of patience. But gang, in the midst of our pluralistic culture, we're supposed to be um, and, and have an obligation for God to be Christ's vessels of reaching them. Instead, we've almost settled down and um, forgotten what the Lord Jesus has asked us to do. It's kind of a spiritual amnesia that we feel like our obligation is, is completed after we've spent an hour with good old Dr. Young. But um, in the case here in Judges 2, the Jews eventually became so accustomed to the sinful ways of, in their, of all of their new pagan neighbors that those ways didn't seem to be very sinful anymore. And uh, the Jews then got somewhat interested in how they do things. And then they saw some of the ways that they do things and thought they were pretty good. And so they began to imitate some of those ways. And um, after they imitated them, uh, they included them and accepted all of this paganism. Guys, <clears throat> Diane McMurrin, when she was here, Diane and Roger McMurrin last week, Diane McMurrin told me a story, and, and I can hardly believe it. I, uh, but I, I do trust Diane and, and think she, and I'm not going to get it exactly right like she got it. But they go from churches from West Coast to East Coast, all kinds of churches. And they were in a very lovely, ornate old church, and I'm not going to tell you the denomination, but it was a member of a large Protestant denomination. But I don't want to be sectarian up here, but uh, beautiful, ornate church, the name that you would recognize, at least the denomination you would recognize easily. And they led in worship in that church like they did here last Sunday. And so they're all seated in um, going through the, uh, the service. And at one point, the, uh, one of the preachers, I almost said something that would... Um, anyway, one of the professionals got up to lead the congregation in their creed. And Diane had it memorized. I, 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 can't, I can't give you a memorized version of the creed, but Diane had it memorized. And it went something like this. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that we can be friends and worshipers alongside those lovers of Buddha. Oh, God, we thank you that we can be here today uh, alongside our neighbors and friends, uh, worshipers of Confucius. We thank you that, the, that Islam is uh, fellow seekers alongside us with, to the holy and right God. 
We thank, and went on and on to list things that we would, that we used to call cults. And now in this mainline denomination, what do you have but a Christian name inclusive of Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam? Ladies and gentlemen, that is how the sin that is here works itself out 4,000 years later. The first step away from the Lord is establishing a friendship, a hearty friendship with the world. And then the next step after we establish that relationship is we develop a love for. And then the, we develop some kind of tolerance or inclusivity. And then finally, the last step is conformity. I want to show you that, if you can thumb real quickly. I want to show you something that you've probably seen before. In the case of a man by the name of Lot, Genesis 13. Find that real quickly, and I've got to move rather hurriedly, but I want you to see this. You remember Lot? Lot was Abraham's nephew. And look at Genesis 13, 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plains of, the, of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. Now notice what's happened. Lot has chosen to desire a nation, an area that included Sodom and Gomorrah. He lifted up his eyes and saw that it was beautiful. Now turn with me. I mean, that same chapter... A look at verse 12. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. He lifted up, his, lifted up his eyes, he desired it, and now we find he's moved over there, but just on the outskirts. He hadn't moved, in, he hadn't moved inside yet. Then you come to Genesis 19, and that story uh, of the angels coming to get Lot and his family out of the city before it's destroyed, and notice... Uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now he's moved inside. He moved from looking at it and saying, boy, that's really pretty, to moving close to it, to moving inside of it. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a human propensity in all of us, not only Lot. The first step is taken when we establish a... Uh, a fast friendship with the world. Gang, um, one thing I hope you will notice about God's book is it's not some ancient relic designed for preacher's use. It is a current relevant message. And what's going on here, its version is that creed that I just mentioned to you a, a minute ago. So now, having heard what the angel of the Lord said, they commenced to weep. And um, I, I don't know what they're weeping over. Maybe they're concerned about the, uh, the broken covenant. But maybe they're concerned about the angel of the Lord saying, I will not drive them out before you. Um, I, I don't know what they're weeping for, but we're told that they weep. 
at least no one is laughing or indifferent, but they're uh, not a bad start, buckets and buckets of tears. And then we're told they, they sacrificed uh, right there to the Lord. And um, uh, that's, that's certainly a good thing that repentance would involve. Now, here's my question to you, ladies and gentlemen. At this point, right here, what would you say? Do you have a repentant people on your hand or not? I said earlier that this text poses us with the question of legitimate and illegitimate repentance. Does this appear to you to be legitimate or illegitimate repentance? That, that's my question and the one that I want to answer, at least one of them. But um, let me admit up front, uh, I can't read people's hearts, certainly the people who lived 4,000 years before me. So I'll never know for sure. But gang, uh, knowing that, that concession, here's a guess. I want to say that their weeping is a part of the consequences of their sin and not because of their, the wickedness of their sin. They're weeping because the angel of the Lord showed up. Who wouldn't weep? Um, all this business that's going on there is a result of the messenger and the message and, and the fact that they're not going to have his help anymore. But I want to suggest to you, and I want to show you some reasons why, that what you have here is not repentance. Let me suggest why I've chosen that view. First of all, let me tell you a story. I've told this story before. I know at least on, uh, on Wednesday night I've told it. But it's some friends of ours who invited us over to uh, and guy, the, one of the ministers that was present the night I heard the gospel uh, in Fort Lauderdale. He is, was now pastoring a church, and he and his wife invited us over for a weekend. And they had had a baby, and the baby, I think, was uh, about two years old now. And so we went over to see our friends and spend the weekend with them and um, um, see their family and et cetera, et cetera. Well, they had a little girl who was, uh, her name was Missy. And I think she was about two, somewhere around in there. And uh, we were, it was a Saturday morning, and we were sitting in the bedroom. All of us, all four of us were sitting in the bedroom and just chatting over what, um, things had gone on in our lives, and, and uh, Linda uh, said, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, and uh, she hushed us all, and she said, I don't hear Missy, and she looked at us and she said, when you don't hear Missy, you know that Missy is somewhere that she shouldn't be, and so we all quietly crept out of the bedroom, headed towards the kitchen, and there she was, I mean, the proverbial hand in the cookie jar lived literally. You know, um, got a chair, went over to the counter, got up there and got her hand in a, a, a jar of cookies. The moment that we walked into the kitchen, that child began to wail. <laughs> Why do you think she began to wail? That uh, she was so grieved that she had offended her mother and daddy's rules? that she took to heart the fact that perhaps she had hurt her parents. Ladies and gentlemen, it was pretty clear she was weeping because she had gotten caught and she knew what was coming next. Now guys, I want to suggest that's what you have here. 
And in light of their subsequent history, that is Israel's subsequent history, it, I don't think it's unfair to regard this as superficial. And by the way, let me, take a, let me show you some of the subsequent history. That's really why I added verses 7 through 10 to our text, because it gives us a peek into their subsequent history. Um, look at verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived them, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Describes what was possibly Israel's 40 or 50 best years. Israel had her absolute spiritual zenith. And then in verse 8, do you see how Joshua, the servant of the Lord, died when he was on? And, and nothing is ever said of Joshua being a military strategist or his great courage or his great ability to lead armies. The only thing that he is called is a servant of the Lord. And men who dedicate themselves to be a servant of the Lord all their lives usually do impact a lot of people, just like as did Joshua. And then they talk about burying him. No pomp, no circumstance. He's buried and tells where. And then we come to verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them. Subsequent history. Who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Now, gang, those are ominous words. And, and I think you can say that the, the, the decline of Israel has begun at this moment. And I'm suggesting, had genuine repentance been present in their parents, that their children most likely wouldn't have ended up like this. Now, um, so I'm saying that we are posed with the question about what is legitimate and illegitimate repentance. But let me just for a second, let me suggest that I'm wrong. Kind of a you know, slight possibility, but uh, very slight indeed. Um, but let's say that this was genuine repentance then there's another lesson for us if this was genuine repentance then my friends who are parents in this room do you see the critical lesson that is contained for us if this was genuine repentance do you see that their that their genuine repentance and faith was not passed on to their children do you understand that faith is not something that's passed on like an inheritance or a bank account at, at death do you see, ladies and gentlemen, that the faith of parents does not necessarily become the faith of their children? Do you see that? And toting them to church isn't necessarily enough? Not necessarily. It isn't enough. Something that was perhaps real for their parents, has become hated by the children. When my daughter and Megan and Scott were home a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, she works in Washington, D.C. She works in the Sam Rayburn building. And the Sam Rayburn building is right next to the Capitol. And when those buildings were built years ago, they were not air conditioned. So the government supplied these buildings with ice three times a day um, that the workers there in these buildings could, uh, you know, enjoy some coolness somehow. Maybe they put it on their heads. I don't know what they did, but it was a, three times a day they got a block of ice or some kind of ice. And then the buildings got air conditioned. This service continued for years. 
And you can thank Newt Gingrich. And he was, he was the guy that finally got it stopped. That ice was no longer delivered <laughs> because it wasn't, it was meaningless now. Do you see my point? Something that was, was good when it started um, then became rote, then became meaningless, and then it became utterly wicked. Is that what's happening? Is that what we're passing on, ladies and gentlemen? Form? Is that what we as parents are entrusting to our children? Form? Tradition? Ritual? Or is there some kind of spiritual dynamic that you as parents take home to your children such that your children recognize that mommy and daddy are very serious about this stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, um, I pastor a wonderful congregation, you, but we got a problem. I got a problem. I got a problem personally. I got a problem clergically or <laughs> professionally. Because all of us have way too much. And we are making our children into little hedonists. We are, we are bending them towards materialism. Because all we do is provide for every one of their little needs. And we wouldn't want to see them suffer in any way. Our children are not supposed to simply ape our faith. They're supposed to have a principle within. They have to have a living faith of their own. You know, I have parents who come to my office on numerous occasions trembling over the fact that they're about to send their darlings away to college. And they're asking me what to do. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, if they don't have a principle within, within, it doesn't matter what college you send them to. And it doesn't matter when you send them. Because if the principle within is not present, they're going to find an attractiveness to sin wherever they are. Because it's attractive to us with a principle within. These principles of faith, ladies and gentlemen, have to be lived out in a dynamic in our home if our children are to take us seriously. Now, that's one of the lessons of the text, but let me get back to the repentance thing and we're just about finished. Another reason that I don't think that this is real repentance is because of this. Repentance is always practical. That is, you don't see anybody saying, All right, y'all, now that we've worshipped the angel of the Lord, get your swords on. We're going to have to uh, correct our sins. Ladies and gentlemen, if it's sin that you're repenting over, then you eliminate the sin. Nobody's saying, All right, rally up here, guys. Let's get the armies back together because we're going to keep the bargain, the covenant that God made with us. Let's go get them. Hot to it. 
Repentance is always practical. It involves correcting the sin that led you there. You don't see any of that in this text. Because they've forgotten. They were too busy enjoying vineyards that they did not plant and wells that they did not dig. And so they forgot. Spiritual amnesia. And um, I want to suggest to you that Bochim is pretense. Because real repentance doesn't stop at the tear ducts. It changes lives. You know, guys, may I throw this in real quick? One of the reasons that we have the Lord's Supper here once a month is because if I'm not worth listening to from behind this pulpit, then at least once a month you can hear the gospel preached in that sacrament. Once a month you can be reminded of the things that are the centerpiece of our faith. Let me summarize. Ladies and gentlemen, salvation is not to be found in simple weeping. It may involve that, indeed. But salvation is, it means that we are trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Repentance cannot be measured by outward manifestations of sorrow. Salvation does not lie in a certain set of observable and almost predictable emotional outpourings. But salvation lies in embracing Christ so much that we can embrace nothing else. Let's pray together. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will use what's been said here to stimulate your people, to cause them to see what is being said to us, not by the preacher, but by the Word of God. And Lord, if I have erred in my presentation of it, I pray, O oh God, that you will stop up the ears of everyone here. But if it's been accurately handled, at least in part, might your people hear that? and take to heart a message not from a sinful, fallible minister preacher, but a message from the angel of the Lord. We commit ourselves to that and do so in Jesus' name. Amen.